Can I have actors to places? Stand by for curtain call. Go. Stand by for house lights. Go. That's a wrap. Good show, everybody. Welcome to Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. Echo Theater Dallas has been amplifying women's voices on stage since 1998. Now we invite you offstage, behind the curtain, for an intimate conversation with theater's most influential and innovative women. Welcome to Season 2 of Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman, and I'm here with Madeline George. Madeline is an award-winning playwright, and here are a couple of the accolades. Won the Whitting Award for Drama in 2016, the Obie Award for Drama in 2014, the Princess Grace Award in 2002. She was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2014, won the Susan Smith Blackburn in 2012, the Lambda Literary Award in 2012. But there's more. She's a founding member of the Obie Award-winning theater collective 13P and was the director of the Bard Satellite Campus at Bayview Correctional Facility in Manhattan for seven years. There's a ton there to mine, but it's just a snapshot of Madeline George. So Madeline, let me dig right in with the first big question. How did you get started in theater? Well, that's a great question. First of all, let me just say thank you so much for having me here. I'm so delighted to be talking to you tonight, Catherine. I started writing plays as a kid, like as a teenager. I mean, I was sort of a little theater nerd kid, but I also, I always wrote. And I had a teacher at a certain point um, in high school who looked at some of my short stories and was like, you know, if you would just take the quotation marks uh, out of this, you would have a play. Like, my short stories were just pure dialogue. Um, And I was like an inveterate eavesdropper as a young person, obsessed with and interested in language from all different directions. And so, yeah, I wrote a little one-act play and sent it to the Young Playwrights Festival, which is a no longer, uh, which no longer exists, but which was a kind of incredible organization that produced teenage playwrights off-Broadway in New York City. And so when I was a senior in high school and then in college, too, I had plays done in New York. Um, And that was just a truly deforming experience. I mean, it was so intoxicating to see. I think, you know, for a lot of playwrights, it's like once you've seen your work in three dimensions, once that thing, that, that secret vision that was inside your head is made manifest in the world, it's you know, it's like crack. You can't get enough. <laughs> so I never, yeah, I never went back after that. Yeah. And and it's so, it's wonderful to hear you tell the story from the perspective of this was my gift and someone gave me a shot and it has been the thing I've loved ever since. Because a lot of people veer off and, you know, if that has happened for you, I'd love to know it. But it sounds like you knew early on that you were going to be writing something and that something ended up being plays. I think that's really right. I, I mean, I think that the theater is a rough it's a rough business. It's it's a it's a pure and beautiful calling, but it's a rough business. And I think I often feel like the way to stay in the theater is to not quit the theater. You know, like if you just keep going, you can do it as long as you want. Um, and it means sort of developing some resilience and 
tolerating disappointment and all that stuff, you know, that grownups need to learn. But yeah, I think once you realize that it's the thing that you love, nothing else can really satisfy you. I read a wonderful book and the title of it escapes my brilliant memory (laughs) at this moment, but it had to do with people at the top of their game delineating the specific qualities that made the difference in them getting to the top of their game. And the number one thing was determination, followed very quickly by perseverance. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So it sounds like when you say the most important thing to have a career in theater is not to quit, (laughs) it kind of grabs both both of those things and says, okay, look right here. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, there's a sort of dark side of that too. Like um, one of my favorite quotes from the playwright, Young Jean Lee, she said, the less talented wipe the floor with the more talented every day. In other words, the the key thing that you that you need it to to stick it out is the sticking out, not necessarily the recognizing of a gift or whatever, or or even the answering of deep spiritual questions or whatever other reasons you might have for doing it. But just like if you put your head down and you're like, I'm going to keep going, I'm going to keep going, really, really got into sort of a, 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 a gritty place quickly here. There's plenty yeah. of pot more. There's plenty of lighter things that we can say about this. <laughs> And and we'll absolutely get there because the theater is a lovely, wonderful, life-affirming thing. But as you said, this is not the easy path to take. Yeah. Not if if you're trying to make your living that way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So it begs the question, though, have you ever, ever come close to saying, I am so done with this. I am stepping away from theater and finding another path. Uh, On a semi-daily basis. I mean... (laughs) Yeah, I think this is exactly it. Like the idea that you would get to a place in your theater life where you were like, ah, now I'm now I have a harmonious and reciprocal relationship with my art form. Therefore, I can proceed. You know, that's not I don't think that's it. It's like you just don't stop, even though you might feel discouraged or you might feel ashamed or you might feel like you laid it all on the line and you didn't get what you wanted or I don't know. I feel like I'm giving myself a pep talk somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and as theater artists, you know, sometimes that pep talk is the inspiration that we need to move to the next step. I want to ask you, you've discussed in interviews before that you have a fraught relationship with your playwriting MFA. So what were some of the benefits to going that direction with your craft? And what were some of the drawbacks? This is a really good question. I, uh, you know, I don't regret my MFA because for a couple of important reasons. One, I met people um, during that time, fellow students and also faculty members who became pivotal in my life. And of course, like that's, I think really that's one of the best reasons to go is that you enter a community of like-minded artists or anyway, similarly invested artists, which if you start out, you know, if you're trying to move into a professional relationship, there's nothing better. Also, those people can become your collaborators. You know, I met uh, the playwright Ann Washburn on my first day of MFA in a stairwell. And we ended up, you know, being co-founders of a theater company together. So really, it's for those reasons, it's amazing. I also, I paid my way through that education by being a classroom teacher, by teaching expository writing, which it turned out I really loved and that I became a, a, a day job for me that I that I still have a relationship um, to, although it's changed over the years. So those are all really good reasons. I am violently opposed to colleges and universities taking money from students to give them a, a terminal degree in dramatic writing. I think that's not ethical. 
and I'm still paying off those loans. And so I think having paid so much for it, I do regret. And I think it kind of warps the dynamic of being an, an, a student of the arts to be putting yourself into a hole financially while you're doing it. So I'm a big supporter of the MFA programs that are out there now that don't ask students to pay money um, towards tuition, that do offer students ways to earn um, a living while they're studying there, for example, by teaching or something. Yeah. I mean, I could say other things about my MFA, but, <laughs> but I also, you know, I went to MFA as a extremely young person, like as a 21 year old. And that is this also stupid move because what is a 21 year old? No, absolutely nothing. Um, I wouldn't do that again either. If I had the chance, I'd wait a bit, season my brain a bit, go back in. And when I had a, more of a clue. You're making me feel like the wisest mother in the world because I suggested something like that to my son, who is a writer. It's like, don't go to graduate school yet. Let it bake a little bit and Mm -hmm. have some life happen. Uh, However, you didn't take that advice and you still did mighty (laughs) fine. So, um, Well, although I went to MFA so young and then I spent 10 years not doing plays, not having my, my plays done in New York, probably because they were not ready. But every day of the those 10 years, I was like, I failed, I failed, I failed. Why did I do this? Why did I do this? So, you know, your son, yeah, your son can that, tell you in the future whether or not the advice was right or wrong. That's true. That's true. And sometimes we never know. We have to wait till the end of that assembly line. <laughs> so you met Anne Washburn there. Yeah. And that has, was a pivotal thing for you because you were with Anne, one of the founders of 13P. That's right. Let's talk about 13P. How did the organization first come about? So the premise of 13P is that it was really uh, less of a theater company than a sort of semi-long-term producing model. It was the idea of the playwright Rob Handel, who currently runs, speaking of MFA programs, the MFA program um, at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. So he and I met at the O'Neill Playwrights Conference in 2002. And he was like... I'm moving to New York. I'm sick and tired of developing plays all the time. This was a moment when playwrights really had trouble getting their plays produced if they were no-name writers. Mm. Um, It was super tough to break in. There weren't second stages so much. There was a sense that your play would be developed and developed and never done. So we were like, what if we band together a bunch of writers that we admire and like, and we raise enough money that we can do one play by each one of us just for a short run in New York City. And that will give other theaters the chance to get to know our work in three dimensions. It'll give us the chance to finally see our plays produced and to learn from that. And it'll be an incredibly fun thing to do. And that's the that was the origin of it. And we were, we did do that. We, 13 of us in the end, got together and made this collective. We produced one play by each of the 13 and then we imploded as planned. And that took about a decade. But it was a really a thrilling time. And I will just say, if I can sort of give a little plug for it, we put together a vault of all of our materials that we ever use. So copies of press releases and production schedules and org charts and um, contracts. And they all live on our, our website in perpetuity, 13p.org. So if people are interested in producing their own work and they are like, hmm, what should I, how should I set up my contract? Anyone can go on our website and download this example and use it as a template. 
So you've got this wonderful collective of like-minded artists who say, okay, we're going to do this, but we're also going to document it. Yeah, that's right. Because then that documentation becomes a roadmap for the next playwright or group of playwrights who want to make something happen. So, so we're looking at a producing model, but the whole time you're writing, you're working with other writers. Did that producing model affect your writing at yeah. all? Oh, well, hugely. I mean, for me, I had, I, this was during that period of time that I was referring to when I was like post MFA, but pre ever getting a, a play up. Not only was I at odds emotionally with the theater, um, and 13P really healed that rift in a way, but also like I was just writing plays that that would be performed at music stands. I really had no, I was never getting a chance to see plays move and live and breathe in space, which is what, where they live. And then having this sort of up close front row seat to these genius writers who are my peers. We had Young Jean Lee was in that group and um, Sarah Rule was in that group and Lucy Thurber, Sheila Callahan, Julia Jarko. These are among my favorite writers in the whole wide world. And getting a chance to actually contribute to their plays being up and then seeing them night after night during the run was a real education uh, that far surpassed anything that could happen in an MFA workshop. So you mentioned that that the group imploded and an intentional implosion. I sort of like that image <laughs> um, in, in 2012 because you had reached the goal that you wanted to. But you've got this incredible group of people that you've just talked about, and you had critical success with your Obi in, in 2006. So was it ever tempting to turn that project from a temporary thing, maybe to go back and say, let's rescind this implosion <laughs> and, uh, and, and explore something else? Well, I will say, I mean, of course, it was, um, it was so much fun, and it was such a source of pride for me personally to to work with 13P, but it was also freaking exhausting. And part of the model ran on a kind, an, an amount of free labor, um, partly because we had young, aspiring producers who worked with us and who cut their teeth sort of with us. Um, but it's not super sustainable. Pretty soon, you need infrastructure. You need long-term funding um, if you want to build an institution that will persist. And we really didn't want to build an institution. We wanted to write our plays and we wanted to help each other put them up. So we felt, I think, super happy to, to finish when we finished. And that's, and, but, but that is why we created this sort of vault of material. And we made a documentary about ourselves because <laughs> we were incredibly humble. <laughs> so we made a documentary about ourselves. It's, um, it's good documentation. <laughs> It's very good documentation. So yes, make the documentary. <laughs> we made, yeah, we were like we, somebody else wants to hear our whole story. And there are plenty of other groups who have done the same thing. There's Workhouse in Minneapolis and the Welders in DC. And it's not just 30P that has done this thing. For us, it was good to do sort of a full decade out of our lives and then put it to bed. And then say, okay, we're done. So uh, just kind of taking an overview, your group, the other groups that you know about that have uh, sort of done the process through this model, what do you think are the most beneficial things that come out of working in that particular model? I mean, I think that doing plays in your city, in your town, for your audience over time is the the whole end all and be all of theater. You know, developing a relationship, cultivating an audience um, building relationships with people who come back to see your shows over time, I think that is a feedback loop that makes writers better, actors better, it makes theater stronger. And 
to me, it's sort of like the dream, like the platonic ideal of theater is that you have that ongoing long-term relationship with an audience. If you're not waiting for a theater to come along and give you a chance to put your work in front of an audience, then you're in, in charge of, of setting up that dynamic and bringing those people in. So that I think is extremely beneficial. Certainly like Workhouse in Minneapolis, like they produced to beat the band. They were, they did so many shows. I think they don't produce anymore, although don't quote me on it. But that they had a, like a vigorous relationship with that audience that lasted over time. And if I were an audience member in Minneapolis, and I would be so excited to have a theater like that, that I knew I wanted to go back to over and over again. It's like being a huge Avengers fan and being like, when's the next one coming out? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that analogy because people wait, you know, it's like, and they're searching the internet. When's the next movie? And what's the buzz about it? I yeah. love the idea too, that even though these things have come to an end in terms of an active movement, you've still got all that beautiful, glorious product that's, right. <laughs> that's out there in the world that people can explore. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So part of your career was also serving as the director for the Bard Campus at Bayview Correctional Facility. That's right. Let's talk a little bit about that. What interested you in working inside a correctional facility? Well, you know, this is this is actually back to this, um, what I was saying about my MFA education. So I once I got a taste of being a classroom teacher at the college level, teaching composition, rhetoric, critical thinking, I was like, oh, I really like this. Like, this is really interesting to me. I'm learning a lot as I'm teaching. And it really kind of opened up a whole side of my personality. And it paid, unlike writing plays, which uh, for many, many years did not. And of course, during the pandemic also does not. So it has some consistency to it. It's a, you know, it's a gig. So that's what I did to make money for years after um, I got my MFA. And I guess to be totally honest, after teaching in relatively expensive private universities and colleges for a while, I teaching freshman comp, you know, first year writing, first year English, not exactly a place where students are usually all that enthusiastic to find themselves. I started to feel like I have a lot to give in this as a teacher. I, I would love to work with some students who really want to be in the classroom with me. And I happened to be teaching at Bard College when they were opening this new campus inside this facility for women in Manhattan. And it was really serendipitous. And I became the director of that campus. And I still work with the Bard Prison Initiative. Now I work as the director of admissions and we have campuses in six prisons across New York State and also some small campuses in collaboration with community organizations where folks can get college degrees on full scholarship who otherwise wouldn't be able to attend. So it's a really, it's a, it's a part of my life that also lets me feel, allows me to stay connected to lots and lots of different kinds of folks. You know, in the theater, I think sometimes we can feel a little, siloed. Like we're all, I mean, so much less so now with the pandemic, but, um, you know, seeing the same people in the same lobbies and like all having seen the same shows and all talking, looking in the same direction. And it's very valuable to me to be able to be in lots of different kinds of conversations with different people. We've spent some time on this podcast talking about the healing power of theater. Mm hmm a community coming together and experiencing something. And it feels very much to me the way you describe what went on uh, or what is continuing to go on 
at Bard is that thing that heals about theater. Mm. What kinds of experiences have you had there? I mean, that is really interesting to think about theater as a healing medium and education as a healing medium. You know, it's very interesting. I've never really thought of it that way. I think that, you know, the thing I love most about teaching is that you create kind of a negative space that the student steps into and then you have provocations that you bring to them like what about this idea or what about this method for for putting um, ideas in the sequence and then it's up to the student to kind of synthesize them into something that takes them to a new place and that kind of give and take is really exciting to me and I never know if theater is the same kind of dynamic or not. Like, I will say that in my last play that I wrote, which is called Hurricane Diane, I worked really hard to make it a sort of rip-roaring comedy. And the feeling that I got from the audiences that watched that play when I was there is that the jokes were kind of like punching them in the head, you know, or whacking them across the face. Like, that's what, you know, comedy is filled with all these violent metaphors, like I killed or, you know, I slayed them. Uh, yep. <laughs> which is not like the kind of healing and reciprocal and uh, dynamic that I was just describing. Um, so it's not a perfect analogy, but there is some way where it's like the playwright is like up there or they're, they're envoys or up there on stage. And then the, it, they're saying to the audience, what about this? What about this provocation? And it's up to the audience to synthesize it and see if it takes them to a new place. I guess I wonder if the very act of allowing your imagination to be freed from previous constraints mm. is not the healing thing itself. That's very profound. I think that's very interesting. Something for us both to think about some more. Yeah, I sure for will. For the next conversation. Okay. <laughs> so speaking of interesting images and metaphors, what metaphor would you use to describe the writing process? <laughs> I'm thinking of so many like snarky things like lying face down on a wet carpet or um, <laughs> standing naked in Times Square. <laughs> that painful. Uh, yeah, I don't have a, some people are transported by their own writing process, but not me. I feel very, I have a real sort of like laborious um, feeling about it. And it's often hard for me to get to it and sit down and do it. There's some threshold that I have to cross of emotional kind of uh, electric fence in order to get over to the flow state where things are just happening. How about that? Electric well, fence. I really like it because <laughs> I've got a parallel for you. I, I write stories about art and theater and artists for television. Uh-huh. That's what I do to make a living. And so I can get to the spot where I'm really ready to write this story and I look at my video and I look at my interview and I think I've got nothing but garbage here. This is terrible. I can't do a thing with it. And so then I decide to go and get some ice cream. Oh, great. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but sometimes when I just let it go, I come back to the next day and I realize I've got six sweet sound bites that are going to go great with the pictures that I've got. And I really do have a good story, but it's just the mental energy of getting ready to write it yeah. that flatlines me sometimes. Yeah, what is that? There's some, we keep ourselves protected from the state of sort of 
untrammeled creativity that's on the other side of that. I mean, when you use the ice cream as the portal, I guess, in that case, which I love. Okay, I'm going to go with using the ice cream as the portal. And I really like that. But that fear of that untrammeled creativity and where it will take you, I think it's maybe the thing that trips me up. I don't Mm -hmm. know if, if you mentioned that because maybe it trips you up as well. But I think that you've hit on what I need to be thinking about. But it's really right. I mean, I sometimes I feel quite jealous of people who are sort of monomaniacally theater creatures, you know, like they are just made of their creative impulses. They are in sequence. They, they have like a constant assent to every one of their impulses. I do not, that's not me. I'm not like that much more rigid and um, self-conscious, but uh, you know, whatever, sometimes some of us are made to be creatures and, and some of us are made to also hold down pretty demanding day jobs. And it's really okay. We, there's room for all of us. Yeah, there really is room for all of us. And just think how less rich this world of theater would be without the folks who go and do the day job and then find their muse at night and just go ahead and make it happen. So yeah, hats right. off to you, Madeline yeah. George. I'm feeling lightly therapized by this interaction, I have to say. I'm I'm really having a good time. I hope everybody else will. (laughs) So I want to ask you about this. You said that a joke is a handshake with the audience. Um, Although after talking about slaying it and killing it, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't go here. But but what do you mean by that? And and let's talk a little bit more about what what comedy is in your writing. I mean, I guess what I meant by a joke is a handshake with the audience is like if the audience laughs that what they have proven is that they are with you, you know, like no understand, no laugh, you know, like it's a way of showing participation. And also you can build on it. So like if you can get them to laugh and then laugh again, and then laugh really hard, you are in a great position to kind of pull the rug out from under them because they're so with you at that point, which is, I guess, that sort of manipulative way to think about comedy. I mean, I I don't think of myself as knowing that much about comedy. All I know is that it's just so seductive to me, and and it feels like there's a tremendous amount of power there. If you want to write about um, concerns or issues or questions or things that are on your mind that are tricky or that people are potentially not all that predisposed to want to hear from you about. It's a pretty great vehicle, I think, for getting them warmed up and ready to be in that in that wondering space with you. Yeah, I can absolutely see that. I, I find myself, especially in times of turmoil like we've been through with this pandemic and, you know, crazy political situation in this country, I find myself needing that ability to consider the difficult things, but I, I've got to be able to laugh at them. Do you have because examples? I just don't know what I'm... What are the things that you're laughing at these days? Um, <laughs> this is the best. Well, yeah, you're right. There's there's not a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe it's it's gallows humor. Yeah. That that I'm dealing with, and, and I think maybe a lot of people need that to process what we're what, yeah. what we're what we're going through. I want to ask about a specific play now. Echo Theater Dallas produced your play, Precious Little, which you wrote in 2015. So let's talk about Precious Little. Tell us why you wrote that play and kind of give us a thumbnail sketch of what it's about. Precious Little is a three-hander for three women of three different ages. And it's about a linguist in her 40s who works on languages that are that are dying, languages that have few speakers left. And she is a kind of a scientific-minded person. And she decides that she's going to have a baby on her own. And then she learns through genetic testing that 
the fetus that she's carrying has a genetic abnormality and that it's possible that the baby will not be able to learn language. At the same time, she's been introduced by her much younger girlfriend to a gorilla in the zoo who is used to be part of a sign language study and has now been sort of deaccessioned from the sign language study and is now living in the zoo. And she begins the play highly skeptical of this gorilla and ends the play basically coming to the gorilla for a kind of nonverbal or more than verbal solace. That all sounds pretty whack, but it's it's a it's an actually pretty short little play, intermissionless play. Um, that's it's asking questions. Fascinating. It's it's that- weird, but it's you know the, it's I think it can be fun for actresses because um, the the younger and the older characters play a number of different roles, all of them pretty theatrical. I'm really excited about the idea of a play about our relationship to language Mm -hmm. and what happens when your entire world is language and something that you love may not ever be able to share the thing that you love. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Wow. That's wonderful. So let's talk now. You mentioned Hurricane Diane a little bit ago, and that was written in 2018, so pretty recently. Yeah. And it's a riff on Euripides the Bacchae. Am I saying Bacchae right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, All I right. So. Good. Ding, ding. Echo produced that play and we're very excited about it. So what was it about the Bacchae that drew you to it 2,000 years after it was written? <laughs> Well, I don't know if people know that play. It's Euripides' last play. It's about the god Dionysus. And it's a really unusual, weird-ass play. Sort of a comedy, sort of a tragedy. And it's about the god Dionysus coming to this town where he has been denied or spurned by the king. And he's like, I don't want to be spurned by this king, who's also his cousin. I want to be worshipped. I'm going to make this town know that I am God. I'll make them suffer. And then once they've suffered, they'll realize that I'm I'm powerful. And then he does that. He tortures them. And then he leaves. That's the play. But it's also filled with like cross-dressing and like weird, um, weird little comic riffs and lots of adventure and special effects. It's a fantastic, if you've not read that play, people should read it. Uh, in my version, Dionysus comes back from having been in long retirement. The god has taken the form of a butch lesbian landscape architect. And she, now Diane, decides to try to get the cult of Dionysus going again in a cul-de-sac in New Jersey as a way of potentially awakening the human race to the reality of climate change and preventing a global catastrophe that will wipe the planet of potential worshipers. That's the premise. Those are some seriously big ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I have to say, I feel like this is a time when the Greeks are really useful to us because they were dealing with big ideas and we're living in the same kind of big scale issues, issues of fate, issues of existential terror. Oh my gosh. Democracy, it's peril, all the things that that concern them. So they, I feel like they're, they're great to take up again now. This is the time. I agree 100% with you. This is the time because if if we don't think about them now, who knows how far this thing will devolve. Hmm. And that's the last thing I'm going to say about that. (laughs) It's quite a word. (laughs) When we chatted beforehand, you told me, and I I should go back and say this, uh, one of the things that uh, you're dealing with in Hurricane Diana, of course, as you mentioned, climate change. And you shared with me that uh, one of your talks 
on climate change was picked up by, of all things, Breitbart oh, man. News. Tell me about that experience. I mean, I haven't read that article. I just saw that there's a headline in that someone had shared it with me. Uh, you know, I, I spoke about um, this play at the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania. And some, uh, a student journalist wrote about it in the student newspaper for the University of Pennsylvania. And I guess anytime anything is tagged climate change, it finds its way to Breitbart. And they sort of torqued what I was saying. And the headline is something like, drama professor, which I'm not, uh, says writing plays about climate change is impossible because the science is undefined or or unspecified or something like that. Of course, I said nothing like that, but I I think I did say it's tough to write plays about big issues because plays are human-scale phenomenon. They take place basically at the scale of the human being, the actor, um, the audience member. They're not, it's not like, you know, to to bring back the Avengers, it's not like the Avengers, you know. Um, You can't really, it's hard to show the cosmos on stage. I think that's what I said, if I remember correctly, trying to talk some genre or some, you know, dramaturgy. Um, and it, it made its way into the right-wing press as like, playwright says climate change isn't real. <laughs> and boy, what you want to do with that, I could imagine. <laughs> Wait I want to ask you, as we sort of bring our conversation to a close, as you mentioned, making a living as a playwright or any kind of artist during a pandemic is so hard. But in addition to being able to make a decent living, what are you most looking forward to when this craziness ends and we have the, whatever our new normal looks like when that when that happens? I mean... All of the things that we have done in congregation with each other, I miss terribly. And my partner will tell you, I am a huge curmudgeon. Like, I was the kind of person who would, like, as the curtain is falling at the theater, I'm like, let's go now. Let's beat the rush. Not a kind of hangout in the lobby and chat kind of a person necessarily. But I miss the theater so much. I miss going to services at the synagogue so much. You know, I miss sitting sitting in a great play. I miss sitting in a terrible play. Um, I miss waiting in line for the ladies' room as intermission bells ring. I miss all of it. And I feel like when it's possible for us to be in theaters again, we're going to cherish all of those rituals with such tenderness because we've been We've been really deprived. Mm, we really absolutely. need to be together. <laughs> people need to be together. That's the meaning of being people. I can we can really feel it now if we couldn't before. We need that contact, absolutely. I I wonder, from my perspective as an audience member, I wonder what kinds of plays I'm going to see post-pandemic. Do you have any idea? I I mean I am sure that we will see a lot of two people trapped in their apartment plays. Which I just, I mean, I was just waxing poetic about how I want to sit in a bad play. I'm not necessarily sure how long my patience for that will last. Although, of course, (laughs) it could be brilliant. Um, But I feel like, you know, I think something is going to happen. My hope is that something's going to happen whereby tropes or plays themselves from the past that have an oblique but enlightened relationship to this moment are going to find their way to the stage. It's going to turn out that what, I don't know, Richard III or, you know, um, 
I don't know, Trouble in Mind by Alice Childress or something, you know, a play is like the perfect play for this moment, even though it actually predates us by 50 or 100 years or 500 years. And th- that's the play that's going to ignite us and set us on fire more than I think a play about the eating of the 10th box of Special K, which we could just do right now. We don't need yeah. to go to the theater to see it. <laughs> Any, any little bit like that. But yeah, you know what? I like that idea so much of, of having a thing that's been with us all along reignite our passions. Mm-hmm. Because it, I think there's a lesson in there for appreciating what we've had all along. Mm, that's nice. That maybe we, need to, maybe we need to relearn. I have so enjoyed our conversation tonight, Me Madeline. Too. Thank you so much. Thank so you, final Madeline. question. Who is a woman in theater? Who inspires you? Um, I was given a heads up about this question. So, of course, I started to make a list. And then I was like, well, now I'm at 25 people. I mean, I can't possibly. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name check a couple of playwrights who have been very influential to me. Um, uh, I would say Susan Laurie Parks, especially the play Venus, which totally changed my life. Um, Paula Vogel, especially the play Baltimore Waltz, which totally changed my life. The playwright Lynn Alvarez, who I think is very underappreciated, a very a lyrical and delicate and and sort of tough-minded playwright. Um, she died in 2009, I think, but she was my professor at the MFA program that I have much maligned in this conversation. And she put it to me that I had no choice but to keep writing plays. And that was is, is something that I go back to all the time. She was very unsentimental the way that she said it, but it really affected me. And then I am I'm, I'm just like a super fan of so many playwrights writing today, like Jackie Sibley's Drury and Claire Barron, um, Aaron Courtney, Anne Washburn. I really think that the composer Janine Tesori is an incredible dramaturg and writer of dramatic story. And uh, I am married to a playwright that I admire a great deal, um, Lisa Crone. And so I would be remiss if I didn't say her too. I love the list that you gave us that is, of course, exemplary people, people maybe some folks don't know about. But again, another reason to get back into theater and see some work by these wonderful women Amen. when we're able to do it. So thank you so much for tonight. It has been absolutely a delight. Where do we direct our listeners to learn more about you or to find out what's coming up with you as soon as the crazy ends? Oh, geez, I don't really have even a website anymore. I mean, I post hysterical rants about student debt on Twitter and very little else. I don't know exactly where to send people. (laughs) (laughs) Send people to Twitter. What's your handle? It's, uh, oh, I'm Memory Cookie from... For Madeline. I like that. Memory cookie. Okay, folks, you got that. Memory cookie at Twitter. Thank you so much for your time tonight, Madeline. Thanks again, Catherine. It's such a pleasure. And thank you all so much for joining us for this episode of Echo Offstage Theater Women Speak. Join us next week when we'll be talking with Becca Chapman about her nonprofit, Prescription Joy, healthcare clowning, and how to be serious about being silly. During the pandemic, we have, in warmer weather, we got these gigantic hamster balls. (laughs) We had them all gather outside, and we were just rolling in these hamster balls and had one of our clowns on a ukulele singing songs like 12 feet away (laughs) with a mask on. So it was, it's been hilarious. We're just, we were determined to help our partners. This is Kateri Kale, Managing Artistic Director at Echo Theater. This episode of Echo Offstage was supported by these North Texas listeners. 
Anita Fiedler, Anika McMillan Harrod, Brad Hennigan, Connie Perry, Daniel Tamez, Dolores Godinez, Donald Jordan, Gail Cronauer, Gregory Gormley, Isabella Russell Ides, James Van House, Karen Lawrence, Karen Mercado, Kate Porter, Laurel Hoitzma, Lynn Richardson, Mark and Lynn Oristano, Patty Lewis, Rhonda Blair, Stephen Siebold, and Susan Swan Smith. Listening in Oklahoma, Elma Broadfoot and Gwen Shenatona. And Tom Syme, listening in New Jersey. Thanks everyone for your kind support. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to support future seasons, you can make a donation at our website, echotheater.org. Add a note that you support Echo Offstage, and we'll read your name and where you listen on the podcast. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak. We're a production of Echo Theater in Dallas, Texas, a nonprofit theater dedicated solely to producing works by women. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman. Our producer and podcast manager is Eric Berg. Our audio engineer and editor is Jonathan Villalobos. Our theme music is by Lynn Barnett, executive produced by Kateri Kale, managing artistic director at Echo Theater. Find out more about Echo and our mission at echotheater.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Echo Theater Dallas. Find these links and more info about today's guests in the show notes. Going dark. Thank you, dark. Thank you, dark. Just make it sound like I've said a tremendous number of mean things to all of my colleagues. Whatever you need to do to like edit that. (laughs) To make that happen.